0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with my co-host, Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos. How's it going, sir? Sean, I am doing really well. Uh, I'm looking forward to a great week. I'm very positive. Me too. Me too. I'm uh, trying to think of something sarcastic to say, but I can't because I am looking forward, <laughs> forward to a good week. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're right. You're
1: right. And I mean, the- you, had, you yeah. had an amazing week. I
0: did. At least at
1: Ghostfire Gaming.
0: Yeah, the Ghostfire Gaming Kickstarter for uh, Grim Hollow, the Monster Grimoire, ended up at one point three four something million dollars, and it's like I said, it's like I said uh, on the Nerdarchy live uh, stream, that if I had run it myself, it would have been one point three four dollars. So, you know, it's it's amazing what having a great team around you can do. And uh, I'm just happy well, to be part of that team.
1: I think they probably feel the same way. They're like, you know, we would have made these huge numbers, but how would the product be without Sean? And now, yeah, they're helming it in. would have I been mean, one point... People writing these monsters. Oh yeah,
0: yeah, it would have been one point three four five eight two instead of three dollars. <laughs> so you know, I no. contributed. <laughs> but there well, is good I news backed everywhere. it. I'm looking forward to getting a copy. Awesome. Me too. <laughs> just you know, just. The hundreds of monsters to go. But there is good news on the horizon uh, for D&D and for RPGs in general, and that's going to kick off our news segment. Uh, we got more news about Wizards of the Coast's success uh, demographically, uh, financially, in 2020. They sent out a press release showing the stats of recent growth. Uh, some of the stats they included were uh, 50 million fans worldwide have played D&D in 2020. Uh, it's the seventh straight year of growth in, in, uh, player participation in sales and so on. And a 33% increase year on year growth globally. Jeez. So it's still going, you know, the first time we heard that it was like, wow, it's continuing to grow even after a year. And now we're seven years into it and it's continuing to grow. So, you know, it's a runaway, as my wife would say, it's a runaway train wreck. Uh, no, it's, it's like a, it's my a, kids were,
1: you know, just every year growing. It's yeah, like, exactly. Wow. Exactly.
0: And hopefully Watsi doesn't have to go to college
1: uh, at the end of that.
0: <laughs> but uh, do you want to talk about some of the more in-depth, fascinating demographics you saw?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was so, so interesting. So, They provided this pie chart of the breakdown by age of different players. And I think what they did is they sort of, they they broke down the ages such that you see how evenly distributed it is. Mm -hmm. And it it is kind of incredible um, because generally what you're looking for in a company is to identify like, what's your demographic? And what this pie chart sort of tries to say is our demographic is yes, all of the above. Mm -hmm. Um, but when you look at it a little closer, there's some, some surprises, uh, especially maybe to those people who love saying, why isn't Wizards bringing my favorite setting from back in 1980, whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that people who are ages 40 plus are 13% of the overall breakdown. Mm-hmm. So 13% of gamers playing D&D are 40 and above. That's you and me, Sean. That's So us. we are 13%. And maybe that's why Spelljammer hasn't arrived yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a 12%, so almost the same, are ages 15 to 19, which is
0: wonderful. Yeah. So there are almost I mean, more more players ages 15 to 19 than there are over 40. Uh, so yeah. just, you know, and we were stuck in such a mindset, rightfully so, you know, even 10 years ago when the most of the gaming population... That we would see, but also most of the gaming population was getting older. And now that trend seems to have reversed.
1: Yeah, we've talked about on the show, we would be at conventions looking around going, like, oh no, you know, this is going to be really bad in a decade or two if nobody new is coming in. All of us are this age. And that's just not true anymore, which is wonderful because those 15, 90 year olds hopefully have. 40 60 years of gaming ahead of them or more mm-hmm. that's awesome right and, and awesome for the brand yep um so then we have some more breakdowns like 24 percent are ages 20 to 24 this is the biggest demographic which is a huge change that itself is awesome and if we add those two together we can say that 36 percent of all players are 24 or younger Another 18% are ages 25 to 29. So, again, if we add that up, 54% of all players are ages 29 or younger, right? More than half are 29 or younger. That's great. That's really good. It's exactly what companies would love to see um, because you've got a strong base that's grown up with the game, and then they're hitting the spending ages. Um, that's great. 18% are ages 30 to 34. 40% are ages 35 to 39. So, like, 32% are in their 30s, you know? Mm. That's great. You know, and that that's almost the highest level pie chart. 54 percent are 30 are less than 30, 32% are in their 30s and 30% are in their 40s and up. So great. Um the demographics are also changing in terms of male, female, 40% are female, less than 1% other or nine bin, binary. Um so that's improving mm-hmm. uh from you know polls of the days of old. Um yeah, and just a lot of fascinating information. Like they say that sales of DM focused books, such as the DMG and Monster Manual, all grew year over year. Mm-hmm. And that's amazing on several levels. One of which is that usually your old material, even your core books, just tend to drop off over time. Right. Or that amidst all the many books, it can be hard to find the what to what you're supposed to buy. Mm-hmm. So the idea that the DMG and MM are still selling strong now suggests that players are DMing, are buying you know, these original core books, and that's exactly what D&D would want to see. It's great.
0: Right, uh, because you know, players' handbook sales are great, but that doesn't mean the DMs, which are important to running the game, are actually engaging. And now seeing that sort of engagement dms spawn players which then spawn new dms which then spawn new players and so that's the sort of cycle that we love to see uh streaming play streaming play looks like it is also uh peaking everyone in in everyone's interest march of 2020 saw an all-time peak in searches for D &D streaming uh D D live play uh I am not surprised to see that millions of people downloaded the free material that was part of the stay-at-home, play-at-home program that Watsi produced as we were entering lockdown because of the pandemic. Uh, I know from personal experience that certain adventures uh, were downloaded at least 100,000 times uh, and for so everybody got
1: it free. Don't forget to get something else by those creators. <laughs> exactly. You know, exactly. That was a lot yeah. of downloads.
0: Yeah, it's all good. And uh, D&D Live 2020, which was supposed to have been in Los Angeles uh, in the springtime of 2020, which was moved to online because of the pandemic, had over 4 million views at, at wow. some point during that. And uh, TikTok has over 1 billion views of the D&D hashtag in 2020. So that just shows that, again, you know, sort of the younger generation for whom TikTok is their uh, social media platform of choice is also uh, engaged in D&D uh, socially.
1: Yep. And if you're older like me, you see TikTok on Twitter when people just repost it. So. Exactly. Exactly. It's all, you know, it's all
0: spreading, spreading the joy <laughs> through all the
1: social media outlets.
0: And uh, so what what's the uh, what's the deal with Dark Alliance video game?
1: Yeah, so they went through at the end because this was, you know, all this information came through as a sales piece that was given to uh, various places. So sort of a press release. And uh, at the end of this was of the graphic was information on upcoming releases. Um, that included June 22nd, where Dark Alliance video game comes out. And they noted that, you know, this is not a license. This is the first video game that comes from their own studio that they created. We reported on mm-hmm. a while back. So that's a big deal because, you know, it's, it's their cash, it's their investment, and it's their profit. Yeah, hopefully. So we'll see how that comes on, on June 22nd. There's been a lot of drum up for that. Um, then they talked about D&D Live and D&D Celebration. Uh, which are again being held so this is i think the first confirmation of D celebration mm-hmm. being an event of some sort you know we don't know the details on it yeah um it also looks like D live doesn't have a gaming component it is a media type mm-hmm. of you know viewership streaming thing um and then just we know that there'll be additional books coming but nothing here that told us exactly what but um Shout out to Tribality.com. They had a really nice coverage of this. And if you go to Tribality.com, you can see these actual graphics for yourself. So a number of places covered it, but, but uh, I thought theirs was particularly useful. Mm-hmm.
0: And in the realm of big names talking about D&D, the Summer of Drist has launched and Benedict Cumberbatch voiced the animated D&D Drist video, which blew my mind. Um, <laughs> yeah, you said this to me and I'm like, yeah. okay, wh- oh, what? <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, what's a, oh, hello. Uh, so you know, it's, it's a, it's a short video where they, t- you know, they talk about dressed and they sort of give that whole, you know, that whole spiel. And my first thought was, yeah, okay. This makes sense. They're doing some, uh, you know, some trailers essentially to get people interested in Dark Alliance. And then I thought, wait a second, they're doing a, they're doing a TV show. We know, we know that the word Underdark was mentioned in that TV show. Is by the this writer, t- yeah. Yeah, by the writer. So is this, is this uh, television production going to have something to do with Drist? And
1: so uh, do you want to give us more detail about uh, what you, what you found? Sure. And, and I mean, I think it all makes sense. You know, you and I had talked about sort of, you know, what is D&D doesn't have one story. But if you look at it, it has several stories that can feel like a d story. And one of them is certainly Drizzt's story. So, it, you know, it's maybe all adding up to something, right? Summer of Drizzt. Well, why, why is Wizards launching this? What's this mean? Uh, they created a new Legend of Drizzt webpage, which is at the dnd.wizards.com slash story slash legend dash of dash Drizzt, so good luck finding that but it is out there right uh and the page reviews all it has sort of information to tell you if you don't know about like the companions of Drizzt, Kedibri, wolfgar bruin regis um you know the story of Menzoberranzan and things like that mm-hmm. it talks about the dark alliance video game um which focuses on Drizzt and the companions um the site also has a change in lore which is really fascinating so we have been talking a lot about how DD looks at orcs or drow and whether you know, in what ways that's harmful, not whether, but how it's harmful um, and, and how to maybe undo that. And so one of the things that's interesting here is that we we get just matter of factly included in, in all of this lore that's on this webpage, the idea that there are two other drow cultures, the Drow and Drow, who live in other cities and who do not follow Lolth. Mm-hmm. So this is likely an attempt by wizards to try to revise this look at the drow, right? As, as sure, some are evil, but others are not. This is a complex tapestry and it's not like Drizzt is some, you know, miracle snowflake, um, you know, that has come out of nowhere. He is one of many, right? right? Right. And and then this is a a species that has, or a race that has a multiplicity of ways of expressing itself like all real peoples do. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's cool. Yeah. I was going to say, and next uh, we we find
0: out that there will be a new novel by R. A. Salvatore uh, called *The Starlight Enclave* that releases August third. So that's another uh, pin in the bulletin board that is the Summer of Drizzt.
1: Yeah, and then a Lez- Legend of Drizzt Amazon store. That tells you something about how uh, these companies are looking at things. When you create your own little Amazon store, and it's it's sort of fun to look at it. It has the you know the Dark Alliance video game. It has that legend, or the Drizzt statuette that came up through Hasbro. So there's another data point that I'd sort of forgotten about because they have this limited edition figurine with the right. two swords that are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, did you happen to watch this video with uh, B. Dave Walters? I did not. Yeah, I only watched a part of it just due to time. Uh, but I love B. Dave Walters, uh, such a great voice. And he has a video where he hosts R. A. Salvatore talking about the story of Drizzt, and, and 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 so it's a good catch-up if you don't sort of know about how R. A. Salvatore went around it. It's always great to hear him talk about it. So I, I, this is on my list to go back and 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 watch later. Yeah. Um and then, uh, and then we've seen also Drizzt and Loth in the new Magic: The Gathering set. A bunch of cards are in this video and in other videos. Yeah, showing that off. So,
0: so more cross promotion. You know, using Drizzt as as a linchpin for pointing out video game book. Uh, I'm surprised there's no comics uh, mentioned here, but maybe there will be by the yet. time. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, and then all of this, of course, comes together to make us wonder if this D and TV show may have some sort of connection. So we, uh, we will find out at some point, but it's not no. today. No, no. Very exciting. We, yep. We have new D and movie news. Uh, the British actress who plays Jenya Safin on, uh, shadow and bone, a Netflix series has been cast and, did we put the other news that came out about, we didn't, we didn't put it in the show notes, but I'm going to mention it. Um, okay. Apparently when you create a movie, you have to register it for copyright reasons. And the copyright registration was put out on on Twitter and other places on what the synopsis of the movie is. Oh, but I saw something that
1: said that maybe that wasn't exactly true, though.
0: Exactly. So first came out the synopsis, which, which talked about, you know, how basically a party of four, a rogue, a wizard, uh, a uh, barbarian, I think, or a fighter and a druid, not a cleric, a druid, uh, <laughs> you know, come together. One was a harper who had been in prison and was released. And so they're joining back up with their group, you know, to fight. Some uh an evil ruler of of the city of Neverwinter <laughs> said, said this synopsis. So everyone, of course, lost their mind in, in a various <laughs> ways. Right. I'm like, oh, that would be a great movie. You know, You're bringing in lore, but it's a, like a heist film. Yeah. You know, it sounds you great. Could, you could make this work well. And then a bubble was burst when someone later said, well, you know, they really don't have to tell the truth on this on what they did because it was a pre-registration. So you can really say anything you want in the pre-registration, but you do have to you know, put the copyright details correctly in the actual registration. Right. So this could just be a red herring. It could be true, but it's fun to speculate.
1: Uh, Super fun. Yeah. And, and if it is true, it seemed pretty cool. So right. that's Exactly.
0: That. It, so if, if it's, if it ends up being the movie, I'm okay with that. And if it's not, I wait to see what else they can come up with.
1: Yeah, the most interesting speculation I heard around it was the the idea that someone noted that it the synopsis didn't say anything about sort of the real world element, right? And I've we, you and I always wondered like, would there be this sort of the Stranger Things where we show the the game being played and then in, go right. into the world, the fiction of the game. Uh, you know, do we go back and forth and, and so there wasn't but as you said, you know, anything can it, it doesn't necessarily mean that's there, not there. Right. Um but I you know I happen to go back a step, I have been watching Shadow and Bone, uh mm-hmm. this Netflix series, and, and Daisy Head uh plays a cool role in that. And so I'm 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 curious to see, you know, sort of as a late addition to the cast what she'll bring to it. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Good
0: stuff all around. Um Dragon Talk, which Teos uh was on last week. We pointed it out that he would be on and sure enough he was. I mean, it was Oof. I watched it. It was a great uh oh. great episode. You and Shelly really, you know, had fun but did some cool D and D work. Uh nice. that, yeah, that, we had fun. Yeah, and and it's something that can be intimidating to new players or to new people that want to DM, but the way you handled it showed very well how you can sort of share that burden and create cool. something all together, and you know, I thought it, was, thought it was wonderful. And now you're pointing out that Dragon Talk has a new feature called Insight Check. Uh, would you like to talk about that?
1: Yeah, so this seems to be a new segment from what they mentioned on the show, uh, and this was the show before last where this first premiered. Um, so insight check is where they're going to introduce a recent staff edition. So I guess it's your opportunity to learn about these people that have joined the staff. And the first one they did was on the awesome Mackenzie D'Armas. She is an associate designer who started in January and she shares her background and the type of work that she's doing, though it's sort of funny because being an addition in January, there's nothing that she can talk about because <laughs> it's all not yet released, It's all new. but, but- yeah, there's just hints of the type of work being done and and the dynamic and what it was like to join wizards at, at, during the pandemic, right? Where you can't actually visit the storied halls and see the big giant statues and things like that. Um, but it's a really cool idea to to give this this understanding of where designers come from and introduce us to to these new um, people because you know they can't go to conventions and things like that yet. Um, so I hope they cover not just the recent editions because we've had a number of those, but also staff members have been around for a while because I feel like, you know, there are a lot of new players coming in all the time and they don't necessarily know who any of these folks are in any great, you know, depth. So.
0: Yeah, I was very fortunate to have Mackenzie come talk to my uh, college class about writing for RPGs. And, it, you know, she was amazing what she covered. She covered monster design and mm. her monster design was amazing it was great for the students to see but it was also great to get perspectives you know some of the people i had come talk to the class were you know 50 year olds 40 year olds 30 year olds and she is pretty much newly out of college with a creative writing degree which is what some of these students were getting right so she was you know basically a year older than them so it showed them that it's not just these people who have been uh designing a you know, designing role-playing games for 30 years or 40 years. Uh, anyone can get into this business. If you are smart, if you are talented, if you know what you're doing, um, the opportunities are there. So I'm glad Mackenzie uh, got to share it with my class and then also got to share it on Dragon Talk.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I have to confess that there was something about listening to uh, this interview where at times you you, you just feel... Her age, and you're like, wow, you're that good at this age. It's sort of like when you think about, you know, Joey Hake or or just any number of really talented new people we have these days, and and you just think, wow, (laughs) I can't wait to see where their careers are going to go because they're this good this early on that's and, and i love Mackenzie's monster design in and the mcdm adventure it's yep our uh, issue um i think it's the first or second issue love what she did with those elemental monsters like uh, that's right yep. up my alley fantastic can't wait to see everything these folks are going to do
0: yep absolutely um uh, and speaking of older game designers, uh, people who have been around a while, Monty Cook has started up his blog again. Uh, now he's discussing the concept of conceptual distance, how far the premise of a game world is from what players understand. And whenever I see Monty start to blog again, I, I, my first thought is, okay, he's working on something new because <laughs> he's got to yep. talk about it. Uh, so uh, do you want to tell us what this... Uh, what
1: this blog talks about? Yeah, he makes the point that in most fantasy role-playing games, the players is able to grasp the concept pretty much immediately. And that's because our game doesn't require a degree in medieval history. We're not recreating it. We're sort of using the highlights of the concepts. And there is a bunch of media that lets us know... That we don't need to worry about, say, like, I don't know, everyday infectious diseases or what it's like to go to a medieval market, but we get the idea of, like, we will fight with swords, um, our clothes might be sort of rough, homespun kind of things. You know, just these high concepts, and we can just jump right into the game. And then it's just tell me the particular rules and let's have fun in this adventure. But the more that a game steps away from that and requires explanation, the harder it is on players to grasp and to get going. And so he makes the point that futuristic science fantasy games are harder because we don't know what the the players can or can't do with their characters. Mm -hmm. And the designers have to bridge that gap in some way. And he talks about sort of how he did it in Numenera and in an upcoming game that he is developing (laughs) to bridge that gap, which it makes you go, okay, this is interesting. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and and it's something that while he can say that in most fantasy RPGs the players can grasp the concept, it's not really that easy because running Dark Sun and running Eberron are two different things where you do have to get through those assumptions and you do have to find a way not only to make the setting work uh, in the minds of the players but make the rules work with the setting in the minds of the players. Uh, so it, it is a challenge. There's no doubt, and you know Monty knows that as well yeah. as anybody. Uh, so it's it's interesting to see. you know, Obviously, like Numenera was something completely different, and right. you do have to then set the ground rules around. You know, whenever you write anything, you're creating the world with words. Um, mm-hmm. It can be, you can call it the real world, but my real world is different from Teos's real world, which is different <laughs> from. You know everyone's real world, so you're always sort of setting the barrier, setting the frame uh, for any story, any game you make. Uh, so you know it's interesting to see Monty. Uh, I, I'm going to say pontificating, but I mean it in a good way, right? Uh, yeah, exploring, yeah. exploring this uh, concept, and probably, hopefully, as he develops his game, he will continue uh, exploring that with us and sharing his knowledge.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and I, this applies to campaigns, as you make an excellent point with, with Eberron and Darkson, because sometimes in our campaigns we want to come up with these really cool, wacky concepts, but the players, if they're supposed to know what life is like there, then you need to give them something. And and, and even in our review of Rime of the Frostmaiden, right, the idea that the rhyme had been around for two years before the start of the adventure then begs a way to communicate that to the players properly so that right. they know how to feel about how they should feel about this. How do most people around me feel like this about this? And if you don't tell them, and and if you don't tell the DM, then that creates that conceptual distance where we don't know exactly how to interact with this. Right. Yep. So, uh, you can check that out.
0: Uh, we have a link in the show notes. It's Montycook.substack.com. And continuing with the theme of blogs, we have DM David talking about how to run an ambush. Uh, He discusses stealth and how the uh, ambush rules in 5e don't really work well because you compare the stealth checks of anyone hiding with the passive perception checks of the opposing side. Um, and any creature, any character or monster that doesn't notice the threat is surprised at the start of the encounter, meaning the ambushes almost never succeed because someone's stealth check is going to be lower than someone's uh, perception yep. check. Yep. Uh, do you have any other thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, so I mean, he goes through this basic uh, concept and, and makes a number of sort of suggestions. One is to assume that the person that is ambushing knows what they're doing and so to represent that add 10 to the ambushers stealth bonus to sort of turn their their bonus into a passive as well rather than rolling because you have 10 goblins one of them's going to roll terribly that spoils the surprise so just assume they're taking 10 right as we would have said in in older editions Mm -hmm. so if they if they have a plus six to stealth then they got a 16 and now ask yourself are they doing a good job at this because if so they should get advantage and as we probably know from the dmg you add plus five to the total when you're when you have advantage on a passive so now it becomes a 21 and now we have a a good basis by which only those characters that have high passive wisdom perception scores are going to avoid surprise but most of the party will which is probably what you intended for Mm -hmm. Um, and he also points out that this sort of process mimics how traps work and ends up being better. And and then he gives just a number of scenarios and covers how those scenarios can can play out in ambushes for maximum fun, including the idea of when initiatives should start. So I found it all a very valuable read. Yeah, he uh, really breaks things down nicely.
0: And so you can give that a read at dmdavid.com. Oh, we got through the news. uh, And now we are going to not take the deepest of dives into Candlekeep Mysteries, but we are going to give sort of a background on what what it covers, and then each of us will dive into one of the adventures contained therein. Uh, So, as an overview, Candlekeep Mysteries is an anthology of adventures written by different members of the D&D community. Uh, Each adventure begins with a specific book that the characters find in Candlekeep, which is an enormous library located on the sword coast in the forgotten realm setting. So you can obviously uh, run these adventures using a different setting. And they give some examples of where to run it. If you're using, uh, Exandria, uh, which is the critical role world, world, uh, Aberon, where you can get the library of, uh, Korenberg or the, uh, Norgrave University Library in Sharn. Hey, if you're going to go really old school and go to the Greyhawk city uh, world of Earth, you can go to the great library in the free city of Greyhawk. So So I had two quick thoughts here.
1: One is... Greyhawk confirmed? (laughs) Well, Greyhawk (laughs) confirmed. The first is that, you know, they started with Exandria, the critical role area. And and I thought that was very interesting um, because of... I think it took the the spot of what I would have expected, which is the great library that exists in uh, Dragonlance, mm-hmm. um, where the the one person who writes down the the lore of ages exists, right. and all that. That's such a you know that'd be a classic example, and so it's, it's sort of very interesting to see. Because they often seem to forget that they have a critical role book, you know. D anD D just seems to not mention it often. Right, right. The the staff and the other products, and so nice to see that shot out here. It's good. I hope I, we see more of that.
0: Yeah, and it's it's odd for me to see this because Candlekeep is such a unique, uh, a unique area in not just Forgotten Realms, but in D anD D. Right, it is a very specific thing with a very specific purpose and a very specific history. Uh, so, yes, you can put a library and these books in those libraries, but it's those other libraries are definitely not like
1: Candlekeep
0: uh, in any way, shape, or form. Here's,
1: here's what's interesting about this book is that this book doesn't actually spend a lot of time in Candlekeep. That's yeah. the big spoiler of Candlekeep Mysteries Yeah, is that it's not – we get a. You know, we'll talk about the, what they do explain, but they don't. They don't cover. This is not. This is not. You know, floor plans of the library. Right. And because of that, these adventures can take place in any darn library, anywhere, yeah. even a little one. Like it doesn't even sure. matter, um, because they're not written that way. Which I actually missed. Like I, I actually wanted to see the halls of candle keep a bit more and adventure in them. That's what I thought I was getting. Right. And, and as I read adventure after adventure, I, I think I only found one that takes place in candle keep. Yeah. So because of the approach they've taken, sure. This could be any library because we're just you right. know literally pulling a book off the shelf and getting zapped into another dimensional space or something like that. And, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and for me, I'm okay with that because historically candle keep is, a problematic place to run adventures. Um, you know, it is such a vault. It is such a locked down vault that to bring trouble to candle keep sort of flies in the face of its actual reason for existence, which is to keep trouble out. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. so I, I, sort of like the idea that, that these books can be anywhere and you can just open it and boom, you're gone. Uh, so it, it for for me it's sort of a, a dual book, right? It's sort of a, a book. Yes, here's some cool things about Candlekeep, and then here are the adventures that really can go anywhere, uh, or or do yep. or do or, or do anything. Yeah. So it's you know, and it's that's, a feature, and, that's it, it's it, a feature it, and a bug.
1: Yeah, it's it's like a TV show that you know, like. Um, Uh, Twilight Zone or something like that where we're not necessarily being told about the larger world that we're giving a fantastic adventure with that spreads away from the the world. Right. And I thought it was sort of interesting because when this book was first advertised only in the very early stage, it was sort of like, yeah, we realized when we wrote Baldur's Gate Descent into Avernus and we send you to Candlekeep that there isn't a lot there. So this will flesh it out. Uh, Not really. You know, this this doesn't flesh out that experience experience greatly it just gives you maybe some side quest adventures you could throw in but but that would detract from everything i you know it's interesting but as you said these are fun adventures and and it is what it is it's and it's okay with what it is
0: yep uh so there is a first an overview which i just covered there's a using the adventure section where it gives you the standard text about hey guess what each adventure is for a certain level but you can adjust them (laughs) really can we I never knew that. Uh, but I guess, you know, every, I guess every book you really have to say these things because you may be getting a new DM. So, you know, this as as much as yeah. experienced DMs may joke about it, uh, you, you do need to say it over and over again. Uh, each adventure starts with the characters finding a book that contains a mystery. And so the adventure is solving the mystery that is uh, set off by the book. They give typical advice on using mm-hmm. box text, being sensitive to the player's. Uh, and, and you know, content warnings that they may need, how it can change the adventure uh, using the Forgotten Realms, talking about we don't have weeks in the Forgotten Realms, we have 10 days, and here's what the calendar of Harptos looks like, because uh, that's one of the first things to steep your players in the yeah. history, right? This is going back to Monty Cook's point, right? You want to let them know <laughs> what the world that they're in means, and so you you need time is important, um, on how to refer to time,
1: uh, the time frame. And, of You the know, book. as the nerd yeah. that I am, I just gotta say that this time frame thing was a big thing for me because you know the most popular page on my blog is the one about the official timeline of D anD. d People are constantly, apparently, searching for when things take place. And <laughs> I'm sure they end up at my webpage and go, really? This is the order of the adventures? That can't be right. Yeah. Uh, and we kind of get that a little bit here. So we're told that the default time frame for this book is 1492. That's the same year as when Descent to Avernus, Baldur's Gate, and, and Dragon Heist take place. Um, but it has some wrinkles in there if, you, if you're interested in, in the timing of it. Because it talks about a, a, an ogre with a headband that w- that's reading a book about Storm King. And the time frame it gives for how long that's been doesn't quite add up with all the rest of the calendar. So, so I, I've always find these pieces fascinating, and I, I updated my blog entry to, to deal nice. with that because, it, it, you know, there's always a struggle, and I find it fascinating. We've talked about this before that D and doesn't want to say things when things are, but also can't help but say when things are and refer to previous right. adventures in its yeah. own text. And so, there's another little piece here that I thought was very interesting from that lore time perspective <laughs> right I mean
0: I I will get lots of emails text tweets Facebook questions about things I've written and probably the the most uh yeah the question I get the most is that it's hey you wrote this adventure when does it take place wow. and my my usual question is I have no idea that was the last thing <laughs> on my mind uh when, when when I wrote that so uh-huh wherever you want it to take place That's when it takes place. (laughs) Uh, And then we get uh, the Candlekeep as a setting section. So, you know, what is Candlekeep? And we talked about all of this before. uh, Before we, uh, or when this book was being written and talked about, we went through what is Candlekeep and why is it important? Uh, So just for a brief summary, uh, just south of Baldur's Gate on the Sword Coast, uh, Candlekeep sits on a peninsula that sticks out into the sea. Uh, it's a walled town that surrounds the library. And to get into the town, you have to get through a gate that is heavily guarded. The only way you're allowed entry is if you provide a valuable book that the library doesn't already have. Or a different version of a book, a valuable version of, of a
1: book. Uh, it's uh, it's odd. and I just want to note that the adventures don't always tell you how you get into Candlekeep. Right. So one of the things that DMs, what I would have loved to have seen is a section sort of saying like for a DM, sort of how can players get in, like, should that be its own adventure? Um, Should you just assume the book and and even just a group exercise where the players together decide what the book is that they're bringing that would launch the adventure can be fun, right? Just a fun little, and I would have loved some sort of table or method by which that could all be facilitated but uh yeah. but some of the adventures are just like yeah you get in and i think one or two of the adventures mentions a reason like a book or even the book that's involved or bringing in but but most of them don't
0: yeah yeah so begs, it, you, well, wait
1: how did i get in
0: right it's something <laughs> that you as the dm have to decide how deep you want your characters to uh or your players to get involved in that if if you're just going to hand wave it and they get in because they get in, that's fine. But yeah, you know, if you want to steep them in the lore of this area, this is really the most important thing. Because if you go back to Baldur's Gate, the video game, what's the reason that you can't, right? You start in, you start in Candle Keep, you leave Candle Keep, and then all of a sudden, hey, you can't get back into Candle Keep, go out into the, the real <laughs> world. Uh, and, and it's because you don't have a book. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, that's mm-hmm. it's that's a real sticking point for people who have played that that game. It's like that's the most important part of
1: Candlekeep. Uh yeah. And we do get some rules for like how you can be allowed to come back. You can sort of have various types of passes and stuff, so that's good. Mm-hmm. Um I, I would say though, you know, we had this when we when you and I designed the confrontation at Candlekeep adventure uh for the early 5E days. That was one of the things we had to deal with, and and what we just said in the premise was just, "Hey, the first thing you do when you sit at your table is come up with the book that you brought as sort of your character introduction and yeah. that ended up being a lot of fun for tables and, and sure, not everybody came up with you know a, a genius answer, but some of the people yeah. can, you know I think once per table you 're going to someone will come up with such a great concept for the book they 're bringing right. and it's just i mean' it 's super fun, so I would have, yeah. I would suggest the dms encourage the dms to give your players that chance to come up with what book they're coming in. And, and it can be a lot of fun. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, Then we hear more about the structure itself and the defenses and decorum around it. So if you try to break in, first of all, it's very hard to do because there are magical wards everywhere that prevent flight in that prevent teleportation into the area. Uh, normal creatures like small birds can fly in, but larger creatures, magical creatures are are not uh, uh, able to get past the, these defenses. There are anti-fire and anti-theft protections also on things inside. There's also a myth that can be activated as a precaution if there is a major calamity. Uh, but if you uh, act badly, if you are a bad actor in or around Candlekeep, Archmages can basically show up in the blink of an eye and annihilate you. So it is good if you're a player to mind your P's and Q's and if you're the DM to, you know, let that part of the setting really sink in by, you know, if your players are the kinds that like to do things that are questionable, just have an NPC next to them do something that's questionable and Archmage shows up and disintegrates the uh, trespasser uh and that should pretty much cure them of of that hopefully Uh, We get stat blocks for the sages, master sages, as well as the avowed who are tasked with maintaining candlekeep. These avowed range from commoners to high-ranking members of a hierarchy, the keeper of tomes being the highest-ranking member of the avowed. And then there are things like uh, people like the first reader. There are eight great readers, master readers, chanters, and so on. So it gives you a history of the uh hierarchy, the religious and the arcane, uh, organizations that hold sway within candle keep.
1: And I racked my brain or, or confused myself by trying to read through this to find a reason why the master sage as a stated action has the fireball spell. <laughs> yep. I was like, they've got to explain this. Like <laughs> some note that says the master sage, can cast a fireball that doesn't damage books or something but no it's just like literally whoever made this master sage stat block assuming it's new for this book um fireball is an action well found out the strangest thing
0: they they may need to leave the library at some point and that's a handy spell to have if you're outside the library right yeah, yeah, I guess. you're not you're not having yeah. any of it.
1: All right, I mean, because they have a spell list, you know, the things they can cast once per day, three times per day. Yeah. But then it's a, it's specifically given out, like you know, I can always cast Shocking Grasp three times per day. I can cast Fireball, and it's like, is that what you prepped a lot of? Because okay, <laughs> all right, yeah.
0: Hmm. Well, I mean, hopefully they, <laughs> hopefully the characters will never have to run into the Master Sage or any of the, you know. True. Higher, higher-ranking people, and you've done something very, very bad. Yeah, uh, and then so we get you know a description of the outer courtyard, uh, maps, just ways to help uh, navigate for the DM and the players within the within Candlekeep itself, even though it's really never used or not used much in any of the adventures.
1: Yeah. And I think anyone who really wants to work with that level of detail, you should check out the amazing Elminster's Candlekeep Companion. Um, I'm a biased because I've worked on the team, but I think everybody's looked at it, agrees that this is an amazing book that was written uh, by Justice Armand and um, why am I blanking? Um, Anthony Joyce. Yes, Anthony Joyce. And then a whole host of other folks uh, helped with it, and uh, and including Ed Greenwood And it is probably the best reference on Candlekeep you'll find in terms of what life is like in Candlekeep, how to run adventures within it, maps, uh, the amazing maps by Marco, um, just incredible work. And what is sort of surprising about this book is that it clearly is influenced by that DM's Guild release, though I didn't see it mentioned in the credits. Um, The map is basically Marco's map, uh, and there are a number of little details about life in Candlekeep that come from that DM Skilled book too which is kind of surprising hmm. um but so i highly recommend checking that out um and one other thing i found surprising is you know you and i worked at confrontation at candlekeep including with ed greenwood to establish various locations but those don't actually seem to appear in this book which I, and, and and all the names are different and things like so it's like okay <laughs> they yeah. chose one influence but not another that was perhaps more wizards of the yeah. coast standard but yeah it's, it's found that yeah, so it that, is. So that, it goes that, with that, lore and age. Exactly. That's why I I've
0: given up on even caring about canon too much. I mean, do your research, use what's <laughs> use what you want, you know, discard yeah. what you don't want uh, and make make something your own. Yeah. I'm I'm cool with that. Uh so anything else about this overview of Candlekeep? The only thing that that uh like I mentioned earlier is that Candlekeep is such a fortress, it's such a magical place, it's such a vault that is not meant to be disturbed that you have to sort of give a reason why anything disturbing might happen in there, right? If there's not supposed to be teleportation magic going on, to open a portal in the middle of Candlekeep sort of flies in the face of everything that you just read can't happen. Uh, So you, you have to take... Take all of that with a grain of salt as you work through these adventures.
1: So... Yeah. One thing that I would say is that what your adventures can be, I mean, obviously you can have like a big deal event happening. Like that's what Confrontation at Candlekeep does and as an adventure, right? There's such a huge attack that all of the powerful monks and archmages are off in the front lines fighting and you, the adventurers, are needed to recover these sort of stones to erect a protective shield, right? Like that's the kind of adventure you can write that's big and grandiose and still can fit because there's such a big thing going on. Um, Or there can be small things, right? Someone opens a book and a monster leaps out and you're right there. So you do things like that. But also what you can do here is it can be an opportunity for things like downtime. Mm -hmm. Um, And we talked about this in in the Elminster's Candlekeep Companion. Part of what I helped with was the downtime ideas uh, because it can be really interesting to be doing research or kind of mystery type activities like, you know, oh, so-and-so could give you information. I Wait, where are they? Where have they gone to? You must find this person or the book's gone missing. It must be located. That kind of interesting can be a lot of fun, right? Where it's not about combats necessarily, but it's about these sort of different skills that you use. Candlekeep's a great place to do that. For sure. For sure.
0: And uh, the first adventure uh, that we're going to talk about, actually, uh, you are looking for someone in in the, in the library. So uh, the first adventure that we're going to talk about of the two is the first level adventure called The Joy of Extra-Dimensional Spaces by Michael Polkenhorn, Great title. Ed- edited by Hannah Rose. And the reason I chose this adventure is it's the first one. And if you are going to give a series of adventures, you better make sure the first one is strong, sets the right tone, uh, has has a good way for new DMs to run it and new players to get involved. So that's what I reviewed this adventure uh, hoping to find, and overall, I found it. I think this was a really nice first level adventure, both for new players and new DMs, to uh, get into D and D by avoiding some of the problematic things that we sometimes see in adventures, especially early first level adventures, and still have it be fun and challenging and uh tapping into the imagination uh the one uh, the one problem I had was in the opening of this adventure, where they sort of talk about the concept, they give some information, but they don't really summarize the adventure for the dm and it it's it's not a horribly complicated adventure, but it is. it does have enough moving parts where I would have loved to see right at the start a synopsis of the adventure. This is what the characters are there for. This is what happens, and this is the potential outcome based on these factors. Uh, because as I was reading, I was confused. And the you want to alleviate as much confusion as possible as early as possible for DMs. We have to remember that these are, we're writing these adventures not to be read for fun, although you can. They're not written for the players. They're written for the DMs to present. So you need to treat it like the user manual that it is so that it can be best used by DMs. Uh, aside from that, everything else what wa- uh, was great as far as I was concerned in this adventure. Uh, The adventure has the players going to Candlekeep in search of a sage named Matrius who can help them with a problem. The sample problem they give is that there is a blight that is hitting their home region and someone has told them that Matrius is the sage who has the answer. So There they go. They go to Candlekeep. They ask, where's Matrius? And they are told Matrius is uh, working in a private study in the library. Let us show you where he is. So the characters are taken to that study. And when they get there, they find Matrius uh, is not there. Although all his things, his books, his personal effects are all laid out on a table as if he had just been there. So this then uh, leads to... The discovery that there – he was reading about extra-dimensional spaces from a book called The Joy of Extra-Dimensional Spaces as opposed to the joy of cooking, say. Uh, or sex. Or of sex, of course. And uh, so they uh, can find the password – to this extra dimensional space, even though they probably don't know the extra dimensional space is there. So there's a little bit of confusion here. Yeah. Uh, You have to read it a couple of times to realize that the book that he's reading was written by a uh, powerful mage named Fistandia. So Fistandia loved uh, to explore and uh, think about extra dimensional spaces so she created one uh, with the portal to that place being right in this particular study. And so the book had a password to the to show the portal, but no one ever put two and two together because so they might say the password, but they weren't at the place where the portal door is. Now Fastandia always used this particular study and uh matrius learned that went to that study and then found the the uh the space so that's why no one else over the years ever found that space so the that's not explained clearly at first uh, that's why i was talking about right. sort of needing to be stated up front what's going on so you may as a dm have to sort of massage this and get put some clues so the players realize that they need to say this word that's in the marginalia of this book, and it's open to that page, so there's a clue there. If they say this uh, word, the portal opens. They see the doorway to this extra-dimensional mansion, which is a version of uh, Mordenkainen's Magnificent Mansion, which Fistandia created and made permanent. So you sort of have to do as the DM a mental walkthrough, Of what's going on so the players uh, say the word doors appear oh here's the portal hey let's go through there is a small problem or a potential problem with this whole portal thing especially when the premise of your adventure is you go to the portal you step through the portal and then you get trapped because what happens is with more than one group (laughs) Someone, oh, I I will step through the portal. Everyone else is waiting. Now, anything going on the other side of the portal, if there's a trap, you can't reveal that to the rest of the players or they won't step through. And then it turns into sort of this awkward, well, we know that we have to step through because that's where the adventure is. So, okay. Okay especially because when they step through the portal, they, they immediately run into uh, the, the sage that they were seeking, Matrius. So Matrius says, hi. And you can introduce and you can say, hey, Matrius, we came here to f- seek your help. Would you help us? And Matrius says, yes. If you do me a favor, I need you to go through the rest of this sort of extra-dimensional mansion for me. If you do that, I'll help you with your problem. Perfectly wonderful way to get adventurers in uh, a OK. The problem comes when Matrius says, "Okay, I'm going to go back through the portal and wait for you on the other side because I've got some research to do." So he steps through, and when he does, even though we are not told this, even as DMs are not told this, uh, he gets he has this. Imp statuette that he found that he's taking back through when you step through, and by the way, tons of spoilers here I think uh doesn't need to be uh, doesn't <laughs> yeah. need to be told uh when you step through the imp turns into a real imp the imp figurine turns into a real imp, stings matrius, and he dies so here's that that whole problem of if one character steps through, the rest don't he does all the talking. Matrius comes through, if the characters are on the other side, they see this happening and could potentially stop it, stop the imp from killing Matrius. Uh, Now, when Matrius steps back through, he can do so because he, quote unquote, knows magic, knows the way to do these things. However, the players don't. So the players are supposed to... I think to... Is it
1: shuts down, right? right. Like the, it, it, the portal it sh- closes or it, something It, like it that. closes.
0: Yeah. It doesn't really give a good explanation on that. You know, It specifically mm-hmm. says, Matrius says, well, I know how to get back through, so I'll go through. But the players are supposed to be trapped on the other side. And I have no problem with that. Uh, just as the DM, you might need to massage the story a bit, depending on what shenanigans your players get up to. Uh, so... If it all goes according to plan, Matrius walks back through, all the player characters are still in the mansion, but now the portal shuts down and they need to find a way back through. They can learn how to get back through by exploring the mansion. Uh, There are clues that they can run across but it may be a while before they run into the different encounters. There are something like 17, I think, uh, rooms for them to, to go through. So it's, it's significant. It's not, you know, just two rooms mm-hmm. and you're done. Um, and the clues that are given to f- solve this problem, find the password back through the portal, they may not run into right away. There's a good chance they will, but if they choose to go through the wrong door or down the wrong passage at the wrong time, they could go through most of this before they actually realize, oh, there's a password, and this is how we find it. So again, as the DM, if your players get frustrated easily by things, you may need to put the path in front of them as opposed to letting them wander to... And be frustrated until they find it themselves. I'm going to take a breath. Teos, is there anything that you want to add yeah. to
1: all of this? Uh, you know, you in the notes you mentioned some of the monsters that are here, and one of the things I liked is is a lot of these adventures have new monsters. They tend to be really cool. Um, you can talk about this one you mentioned here because it is really neat. But but they they're either just really neat. Um, they're often things from the past of D and D, like Gingwatzim in one of the adventures. Is a is such a shout back to old AD and D, kind of silliness monsters. A lost but, um, Island yeah, of so Estanimir. I thought that was great. Yeah. So the yeah, as, I love that adventure. Yeah.
0: As As Teos mentions, they they there are neat monsters, and not only that, but they're all animated objects. So one of the first things with mm-hmm. new players you run across is you put a sentient creature up against the player characters and there's instantly this sort of moment of are we supposed to kill things in this game or not? You know. And and it it can be an awkward moment. With mm-hmm. here you're yeah. attacking animated books. So you're not killing anything sentient. You're attacking an animated broom. You're you know, an animated bookcase, these sorts of things, which is you know a safe Way to get that sort of you know combat out of the way to get it into the minds of the characters and the players to to sort of get that social contract built if you don 't have a good session zero to build it from the start um, when I see all animated things as monsters, my first fear is there 's going to be nothing cool for the players to actually interact with if everything 's an animated book and a broom and a bookcase. Who are they going to talk to? Well, it turns out that the author had that taken care of because there are some really fun things for them to interact with, including two talking homunculi named cumin and coriander who rule over the kitchen. <laughs> and they just they want to make food for yeah, someone. Great stuff. Now, and now they can provide uh, the clues that the char- the players and the characters need to learn about. Their, the password and getting back through the portal and what's going on in this mansion. But they also want to make food because that's they're, they're cooks. All they have around them are cats and fairy dragons who really, you know, they don't eat a a wide variety of things. So, you know, fun to role play with them. These two fairy dragons who want to sort of trick and taunt the the characters, not kill them, but, you know, play around with them because the cats are no fun to play with. So these dragons wanna to do some fun things. So we have all sorts of potential for fun role playing for for new players in that way. There are some puzzles. Uh the puzzles aren't overly complicated. You know, it, there's a there's a planetarium with special stars highlighted. In the next room there are five Telescopes. Well, in the last room, there were five stars highlighted. So if you point the telescope at the stars, then the secret door is revealed. And, you know, so cool things like that that aren't overly complicated. Um, You can always give hints if necessary, but for the most part, they shouldn't need too many of those hints. Um, The main puzzle that the characters are trying to solve is how to get back through the portal and they do so by finding seven very specific and unusual books, each one with a single letter on its spine. And these uh, homunculi and dragons give clues about finding those books. Um, if they don't, if the players don't get that those hints first, and they go through rooms and with tons of books laying here and there, um, they may need a clue from you that these books are important uh the big clue is that they have morden Canaan on the cover and so did the book back in the office back in uh candlekeep so th- there's a there's a clue that you can provide so to let them know uh so overall you know it's it's a search these unusual rooms interact with these unusual creatures a few fights with animated things crawling claws nothing uh sentient that you need to worry about and Overall, it's a fun it's a fun little adventure. Uh, then, when you put all the clues together, you get the password out uh, after finding the seven books, and you can find your way back to Candlekeep. Unfortunately, the imp that killed uh, your, your the person that you were looking for, uh, Matrius has killed him and is hiding invisibly back in the office. So the <laughs> characters may have to deal with him, but then they're on their way to, you know, Oh, now maybe there's another person who can help us or who is this vestandia We know she's still alive because her, her homunculi is still alive and uh, maybe, yeah. maybe she can help us or maybe she's mad that we entered her. You know, you can go in various directions from there, but, you know overall for a first adventure i i enjoyed it
1: yeah i thought it was pretty good too um and I, I thought it was like you know it's neat because these are we talked about this before these are all new or many of them are new authors and so uh like uh, this adventure you reviewed michael polkinghorn wrote it and he is someone who you know uh, lives in a works in a vineyard uh, has been playing D&D throughout the ages runs a podcast and ended up being an author on this, right? And so it shows that sort of diversity of how people can come from all kinds of different angles to to contribute to D and D. And and it, it, yeah, I think this would be a fun adventure to run. I was overall really impressed with the quality of all of these pieces. Yep.
0: And and it, so uh, shall I talk about mine?
1: Yeah. Totally. Um, so a number of them are written by D and D designers, and as you would expect, some of the more fun ones uh, come from sort of people who have a long background in it. Uh, one of the one that I'm picking to cover is Shemsheim's Bedtime Rhyme mm-hmm. by Ari Levitch, who is a member of the D and D team and has, uh, you know, a lot of experience in working on these kinds of things. And we should say that every of the, every one of these adventures is focused on a book and includes the art of that book, which is a neat part of it. Mm-hmm. And this one is particularly interesting because it sort of has these mechanical clockwork features on the side of, of the spine of the book. And we then later get art of the book when it's open because this is not a book with pages. You open it and you see four different um, kind of pop up book like sections that will move and play music. And the whole premise of this adventure is, and, and it's exactly what I like about it, is very different than most adventures. And often when I look at a book like Candlekeep Mysteries that is giving me a bunch of different. Uh, kind of one shots that I can run, right? Small adventures. I want interesting stuff in it. Mm-hmm. Something that I might not have seen before. Not just, you know, explore the wizard tower, but give me a, a, unique, a unique kind of experience. And in this case, it is a very different experience because what this is all about is that this book is cursed. Someone found it and it plays a nursery rhyme that gets stuck in your head and you will hum it And then everyone around you who hears you humming it will hum it and it's sort of this rhyme plague Mm -hmm. that uh is starting to take over and that idea and so what happens is that you are staying at the um uh house of rest people begin to hum this and the uh avowed very quickly put shut the place down and put you in quarantine so you are in firefly cellar where you are staying And you and several NPCs are in this quarantine area until people figure out what's going on. Well, guess what? You're going to be the one to figure it out (laughs) because the book is down here with you and you don't know that initially. So it plays out as a sort of mystery that uh, has six events that the DM can control the pace of to push the narrative forward. And so these events can kind of come in at any point the DM chooses to push the mystery in one way or another and 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 certain things can not happen until events take place um and the big part of this is even once you get the book the book has been damaged so you don't have the whole rhyme and in fact when players are singing it early on you will give them a copy of the rhyme as a handout and they don't have the final piece and the final piece isn't necessary to solve the overall puzzle and defeat the the big 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 bad um you also have that kind of role playing component that gets built in where at various points the players can fall under the curse and have to. You may want to have them <laughs> sing it out loud so you give them the rhyme, which I think is kind of fun. Um, it, this is for fourth level PCs and uh, it has some parts that are a little brutal. They, they could be pretty beat up if they don't have healing by the time of the final combat, so it's probably worth watching. Um, but what's neat is at the end. Um, they, the, you, you finally find who has the book. Um, you realize part of the book is broken. When you fix it, you can get the last piece of the rhyme and the undead spirit of Shem Chime, the creator of the book appears. And the, uh, Shem Chime has a number of interesting sort of attacks that they can do, including making people attack each other, which characters attacking each other tends to be one of the highest damage things you can come up with. So yep. that can hurt, especially if they've been hit a lot earlier. So, you know, um, it's something to watch. But uh, what makes it super interesting is Shemshime will be at one hit point and can't go below that until you use the last part of the rhyme to solve how to kill them, which involves crushing Shemshime under at least a thousand pounds, I think it is. So there are three different things they can use to crush Shemshime, and Shemshime will follow the person who has the book. So that's sort of a mechanism that you can use, which I think is fine. It's not overly complicated, you know, run around get you know topple things onto Shemshime I think that's perfectly fun it's the kind of thing that maybe sounds a little simple but actually I think in play will be a lot of fun yeah um so I like the premise I love the events and, and I'm not covering this but every one of the rooms down in this Firefly Cellar is detailed and can be explored as the characters are trying to figure out what went wrong um, and 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 it's, it's just very imaginative very creative and the whole being here is is kind of neat and in fact i think that if you're thinking of how do i merge from the the real life pandemic we've all been in um and feel like you've defeated the pandemic this kind of lets you defeat a pandemic so it may be what you're looking for it's not overly dark um it can be i I couldn't help but read it and think this is like beating a pandemic i kind of like this so it's a great way to you know run your group through your first post pandemic game by beating a pandemic nice (laughs) yeah
0: yeah, I I uh, I like the you know sort of different mindset almost. It, you know, more of the sort of the exploration interaction sort of uh, aspect of it rather than just being a dungeon delve. Uh, I,
1: I appreciated that as as a yeah. different sort of flavor. And it, it is adventure. all in Candlekeep. Yeah, that's true. It's true. Yeah, yeah and, and it's the one that takes place in Candlekeep. Nice. Um just really quickly uh before we wrap up i I have there are a number of good ones in here uh alcazar's appendix is an adventure that's a desert tomb type adventure by adam lee no surprise that adam lee just knocks this out of the park if you like pharaoh or classic adventures like that if you love your desert type tomb stuff uh this is awesome uh derek Ruiz, who is elven tower on the interwebs Writes Sarah of Yellowcrest Manor, which is a dark mystery, very Ravenlofty. You could easy easily slide this and several other adventures into uh, a Ravenloft campaign. Um Daniel Kwan writes the Book of Inner Alchemy, which is a kind of monk martial art type fest. Very cool as well. Some really neat NPCs in that. Xanthoria is by the awesome Tony Winslow Brill. And it's all about Zugmoy, no surprise given Tony Winslow Brill's, you know, Greyhawk lore connection type Love. Uh, This is a fungal plague adventure, so another defeat the plague kind of thing. Um, There are some really neat aspects to that adventure as well. And shout out to the editors and developers who worked on the tome because a lot of these writers were first-time writers. Um, If you've listened to the Dragon Talk podcast, you can hear them talk about how hard it was for them to write and how valuable it was to have people like Bill Benham, Scott Fitzgerald Gray, Kim Mohan, Hannah Rose, Mm -hmm. and others work with all of these people to, to get it to, to this stage. So yeah,
0: it's good. Any designer knows tip your editor, tip your developer, because <laughs> they're the ones that, you know, can, can make your mistakes into gold and you're always going to make mistakes no matter what. So, uh, good on them. Awesome. Uh, any final thoughts on this, this book? uh, yeah, I I heard mixed reviews when it came out, and I didn't read every adventure in here. But for the parts I read, I I was I was happy with. I I thought you don't have to write perfect adventures, but you have to write adventures that DMs can make perfect for their own groups. And I think all you know all the ones I read sort certainly fit that bill.
1: Yeah, no, it's good. I I, I would recommend it. I I was a little worried too. Um, but no, this is fun. There are some fun ideas in here and lots of good one shot potential. And yeah. Awesome.
0: So thank you all for listening. Uh, We hope you enjoyed that review and thank you to our patrons who are helping keep the lights on and patrons. If you're a patron of mastering dungeons, we have something special for you this week. Teos, tell them what they've won. (laughs)
1: <laughs> You've won a copy of Rules for Collaborative Campaign Creation. Uh, so this is a product that I just put up on drive and I created it when I was on the D&D Dragon Talk podcast with Shelley Mazenoble as we're going through how to do collaborative campaign creation. And I have given out copies free to anyone who joins my mailing list, but we're also giving it out to everybody who is on the MMP pa- Patreon. So if you join patreon.com slash MMP. Uh, you will get a copy of this sent to you as well.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that, Teos. Uh, where can people find you and your work and your new mailing list? Woo!
1: Join the mailing list at alphastream.org and get free stuff in the future. Uh, find me on Twitter at Alphastream. Where are you hiding, Sean?
0: I am hiding on Twitter right now at Sean Merwin. You can also go to the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com and let us know what you think about what we're talking about. And if you want to follow the podcast itself on Twitter, you can go to at MasteringDND. Mastering Dungeons is a misdirected mark production, the media arm of encoded designs. So, Teos, now that we have explored and escaped from Candlekeep mostly unscathed, what should we do now?
1: Uh, I think that we have a new companion, which is a swarm of books that's going to come along with us in our adventures, and that's what we're going to use to kill some monsters. Do you know what, how uh, animated books attack? Tell me.
0: With a book club. <laughs>